Good morning. Today's reading is from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, verse 12. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, well, good morning. I'm uh, Pastor Joey. I am the more um, foolish of the two co-lead pastors here at Faith. We just wanted to be home. That was why we did it. It's Thanksgiving at Nana and Papa's house. Nine adults, nine kids. We were vastly outnumbered. It was so chaotic that my wife Jen and I uh, escaped after the big Thanksgiving meal to go get groceries at Walmart uh, about an hour before Black Friday deals went live. Walmart was a Zen monastery compared to Nana and Papa's house. That's why we did it. We just wanted to be home. You know, in retrospect, uh, driving into a snowstorm at three o'clock in the afternoon with a seven hour drive ahead of us wasn't the smartest move I've ever made. But we just wanted to be home, so we packed up, we started going. Three hours later, we should have been to about the middle of Illinois, but we hadn't even made it to the border yet. We tried to keep Anna occupied by counting cars in the ditch. <laughs> 10, 20, should we turn back? 30, 40, this is probably really dumb, 50, 60, but I white-knuckled the steering wheel and kept driving. 
even though darkness was coming and the temperature was falling. We just wanted to be home. We just wanted to be home. I don't think we're alone in this. My wife and I hate feeling like we're stuck between places. I either want to be where we were or where we're going. I don't like being on the way. I want to keep going, push through, get home. It's not as much fun to be on the way when you could just be home, which is what the whole season of Advent is about. Advent is a time in the calendar intentionally set aside for us to pause in being on the way so that we can feel what it's like to be between the two Advents, between our Savior coming and our King returning. And this week, the second week of Advent, Christians focus on the question, how long? How long, O Lord, how long until our King returns? And what do we do in the meantime? See, today's passage, you just heard it read, Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12, uh, teaches us how to live on the way, in the in-between, between the Advents, between Jesus' first Advent, his first coming as a baby in Bethlehem, and his second Advent, his second coming as our King. And as we go through this passage, it's one of the most difficult sections in the whole book, we're going to see that the author of Hebrews wants his readers and wants us to understand that we're on a journey. We're not going to get to feel at home, to be at home until the second advent, until the end. Just like them, we are on a journey. We're not going to be home until the second advent. What he has to say to them, we also need to hear, because he reminds us and them how to live between the advents. What does it take to live when you can't settle, when you're on the way, when you're not at home? Let's jump in. Hebrews 5.11 is where we're beginning, which is, you turn there, by the way, if you need one of those black Bibles under the seat in front of you, it's on page 1190. If you have one of these Hebrews journals, and if you don't, you can get more at the Welcome Center, I think. Um, If you want one of these, you can go grab one down there. It's on page 2122. As we turn to Hebrews 5, remember, we are in this section of the letter where our author is developing this theme of Jesus as the great high priest. Jesus, the great high priest. It's a title that's unique to him because he's the only high priest in the whole line who didn't just perpetuate the sacrificial system or perform the system. He finished it. He completed it. He brought it to perfection, to its final state. Uh, But before we can get on to that, before you can dig into Jesus, the great high priest, the order of Melchizedek, and all of this stuff, he he pauses for a bit to pause that explanation, issue a bit of a warning. He's saying, stick with me here. This is going to get a little technical, but it's important. So in this, this pause, he doesn't pull his punches. He wants his readers to stick with him. This is profoundly relevant, what he's talking about. It's relevant, it's important for how they think of themselves, their community, and their faith. Uh, so as we consider this, this passage today, this kind of pause in the broader exposition of Jesus as the great high priest, uh, we're going to move through this in three parts. It's a three-part warning. He starts with a gentle rebuke. He starts with a gentle rebuke, and then he moves to more of a stern warning and then rounds it out with some compassionate encouragement. A gentle rebuke, a stern warning, and compassionate encouragement. 
we'll begin with a gentle rebuke. Jumping right in in chapter 5, verse 11. The gentle rebuke is basically this. To live between the advents, we're going to have to mature. We're going to have to mature from truth to goodness. That's the gentle rebuke. You need to mature from truth to goodness. Take a look at 5.11. Let me explain what I mean. 5.11, he says, about this we have much to say, that is about Jesus, the great high priest, the order of Melchizedek, all of that. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And before I go farther, let me pause just to point out, he's starting to get a little sarcastic, okay? I'm going to try to read it with the appropriate tone. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the elementary, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Anytime family gets together, like Thanksgiving or some other holiday, uh, we all get together from far apart and, and kids are involved. Anytime that happens, you get a kid meltdown. There's always one epic kid meltdown in every family gathering. Because we parents have come together, we haven't seen each other in six months or a year, and so we're not really doing what we should do in putting our kids to bed when they get tired. You know, because we want to talk, we want to catch up, we want to spend time with each other, and so the kids start getting cranky, and they're falling asleep all over the house. One's laid out on the couch, one is face down in the Lego bin, uh, one's asleep on his mother's lap, one somehow fell asleep headed down the stairs. I don't know how they do that, but they can, they can sleep anywhere. And you know, three or four days of that, of no naps and not going to bed at the right time, and every single kid is cranked like a jack-in-the-box, ready to go off with no warning, right? And when the jack-jack attack happens, you know what you're supposed to do as a loving parent. You're supposed to take the child in your arms and comfort them and console them and put them in bed and maybe lay down next to them and just be with them until they finally fall asleep. Except the parents haven't been going to bed on time either. And so we're cranky as well, and if you get cranky and you're like me, then um, sarcasm becomes your preferred response. And you know, the 10-year-old boy, the, the nephew starts throwing a fit and acting all the time, and you're like, oh, does Will baby need his blinky? Does Will baby need a bottle? Does Will baby need to go to bed? Is Will baby willing to risk his family's safety in order to sleep in his own bed tonight? It's a highly sophisticated and nuanced and intelligent negotiation you're entering into with the child, right? You're essentially shaming them into feeling guilty for acting like a sleep-deprived human with poor impulse control. But it feels good as an adult, and it's funny. It shouldn't be, but it is. You're not any holier than I am, so... <laughs> Thanks for that. With a kid, it's funny. With an adult, sarcasm can be serious stuff. What, what this author's trying to do here uh, is give a gentle rebuke through sarcasm. He's, he's trying to apply sarcasm to us to get us to respond. When you go to your 10-year-old nephew and you're like, does little baby need a nap? He's like, no, I don't. That's what you're trying to get out of him. An acknowledgement that he's, he's acting in a way that's not appropriate to his age and to his maturity. So when he says, you're dull of hearing, they're saying, no, we're not. So you need someone to teach you again the basics. Like, no, we don't. We've got this. You need milk. You need a bottle. 
Like, no, we're tracking with you. We've got this. We're moving along. And, and, and his goal is to get his readers to kind of sit up and say, that's, no, I'm, I'm with you. I'm following you. And, and he drops away the sarcasm in verse 13 and actually kind of delivers a bit of a one-two punch. The first punch was the sarcasm. The, the second one is a bit of, of reality. He says, you need milk, not solid food, because everybody who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's gotten them to kind of sit up and say, I don't need milk. Give me the solid food. Give me the solid food of this deep theological teaching that you're bringing out. That's what I want. I need more of that. And yet he sort of tricked them because the solid food isn't deep theological teaching. The solid food he has in mind is actually deep life application. See, theology is milk. Solid food is theology applied to life. He's telling them, look, you're like uncoordinated children. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness, the message of righteousness, of right living, of right application, of right theology to life. So you don't know what you're doing yet. You need, you need to be trained in how to take what you know and translate it into what you do, how you live, and who you are. That's what it means to be mature, to handle the solid food. That's what it means to have uh, your abilities to distinguish good from evil uh, worked out by practice, trained by constant practice. Notice, he said their ability to distinguish good, or good from evil. He didn't say truth from error. He's talking about how they live. Let's grow up and apply this to life. I th you could kind of think of this like the kids' table and the adults' table at Thanksgiving. My dad is the second of 11 kids, so when we all got together for Thanksgiving with my dad's side of the family, at most, at our largest, there were about 50 of us around the table. One long table. It started in the kitchen, and it went into the dining room, and it hung a left, and went into the living room, and then hung another left, and it went into the entryway. And there were too many of us to have a separate kids' table and adults' table, so instead, it was sort of like a spectrum from the youngest kids at one end all the way around to the uh, oldest adults at the other. And as you can imagine, the quality of conversation was different at the different tables. One of the table talked about you know, the comparative value and fluctuations of various investment portfolios. And the other end of the table, uh, we were talking of you know, making off-color jokes and trying to steal pieces of pie when grandma wasn't looking. But while the sort of quality of the conversation was different, what wasn't different was the actual level of conduct. See, the adults at one end were one-upping each other, dropping humble brags, jockeying for position, telling stories to make themselves look good, maintaining the family pecking order just as much as the kids were. They were just using more sophisticated language to do it. See, our author here is he's telling, he's not telling us you need to graduate from the kids' table the theology at the kids' table to the theology at the adults' table. He's not telling us to move from the kids' table to the adults' table and, and you know, really handle this solid food of deep learning. He's saying, take what you get at the table and do something with it. Apply it to your life. Live it out. Take what you've got 
and figure out how it applies. It's as you figure out how it applies to life that you become mature enough to handle the more solid things like the warning that's about to come. See, this is a kind of a gentle rebuke, using sarcasm to get us on board. On this journey between the advents, we have to mature from truth to goodness. Truth is good, but incomplete on its own. It has to be applied. It has to be worked out. Take what you know and do something with it. That's the gentle rebuke that he's giving us. And it leads into the stern warning. To live between the advents, yeah, we need to mature from truth to goodness, but we also need to become more focused on the finish than the start. This is the stern warning. We need to learn to focus more on the finish than the start. Look at verse 4 of chapter 6. It says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. These are hard words. It's quite the warning. And he's making one of the most provocative claims that he makes in the entire letter, essentially telling us it it matters less how well you start your journey as a Christian. Matters less how well you start, what matters more is how you finish. Now, in the background of this passage, and really the first five or six chapters of Hebrews so far, in the background is this analogy of the experience of the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, You may remember the story. The Jewish people were slaves in Egypt until Moses, with a little bit of help, a lot of help from God, uh, convinced Pharaoh to let them leave. Uh, Lots of dramatic things happened along the way, culminating in the destruction of Pharaoh's army and the, the freedom of the Jewish people, the freedom to follow God's leading into the land that he had promised them. But then things don't, don't go so well. There's a lot of grumbling and dissension, not enough food, not enough water, a lot of people going in the same direction without a map, no GPS, and they're not exactly sure where God's leading or how exactly to get there. They just know that they're going and there's sand everywhere. So they get right up to the edge of the promised land and they look in and they say, that's not all it's cracked up to be. And as punishment, God tells the entire generation, look, you, you are going to waste away in the deserts and your kids will inherit the promise that you weren't faithful enough to receive. Our author is arguing, look, there's a whole generation of people, of chosen people who were saved from Egypt but weren't saved to the promised land. He introduced this in chapters 3 and 4. That's why he kept telling us, don't harden your hearts. Don't be like the people in the day of rebellion. Don't fall away by your disobedience. You can start well, but the finish is more important. When it comes to living between the advents, between the coming of Christ as our Savior and His return as our King, Don't fall away. Don't slide off the road. 
Don't be like those who were saved from Egypt but never made it to the promised land because of their rebellion and their disobedience. Starting well is one thing. Finishing well is something else. You could picture it like, imagine there's, there's two Israelites, two guys. They're neighbors. They keep pitching their tents next to each other every time the caravan stops. They're, they're friends. And one of them is thinking to himself, he looks around at their situation and he thinks, look at how far God has brought us. Remember what he saved us from? You remember what it was like to be a slave back in Egypt? You remember what it was like to have to collect our own straw to make bricks? You remember how we suffered Look at what God has saved us from. And listen, you've heard the promises of what God is saving us to. He's taking us to this land that he has promised to us. It's so fertile. It's like it's, it's, like it's literally flowing with milk and honey. That's how amazing the land is that he's promised to us. And he's brought us so far. Of course he'll bring us to the end. We can trust him. How could we not follow? But his neighbor's thinking, Man, look at where God has brought us. This desert is hot, and it's tiring, and it's sandy, and it's scratchy, and there's no water, and all we've got for food is this quail and this manna every single day. It's the same thing. I can't believe, why would God bring us here? It's the worst. If this is God's best, I don't want it. I'd rather go back. You see the difference? And yet they both experienced the same thing. Both were slaves. Both took shelter under the blood of the lamb. Both were led out of bondage. Both followed the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. Both tasted of the goodness of God and his provision of water from the rock of manna and quail. But one had faith that would preserve, that would persevere and stick to the end. The other didn't. Both have been enlightened. Both have tasted the heavenly gift. Both have shared in the spirit. Both have tasted the goodness of God and the power of the age to come. But only one experienced all of that and had real faith, real faith in God. Look, if somebody falls away, here's what our author's saying, if somebody can fall away from all of that, then just like in the wilderness generation, how do you get them back? How do you get them back? It's impossible. The very act of walking away which, by the way, is what apostasy means, a moving away from a place. The very act of walking away they're essentially re-crucifying Christ, holding him up to contempt. They're saying in everything they experience in their time within Christianity, their conclusion is not worth it. Not worth much more than contempt. Might as well crucify Jesus again for all the good he did for me. Now, in the whole argument of the book of Hebrews, we know that a person who walks away isn't a true believer. He defined a true believer in chapters 3 and 4 as someone who doesn't walk away. That means we never stop praying and loving the person who was with us but then walked away. Because if they did, it means they aren't a believer yet. They may have learned a lot about Jesus, but they haven't met him yet. 
not in the full sense. So there's still hope. We pray for, care for, share with, and persevere in loving the person who has walked away. But for ourselves, this warning is directed at the body of believers saying to us, don't walk away. Don't be the person who falls off the road. Don't be the person who falls away in the wilderness and turns around and goes back. Persevere. Don't assume that just because you started well, the finish is guaranteed. Stick with it. Focus on the finish. See, to live between the advents, between the coming of Christ as our Savior and His coming as our King, we're going to have to mature from truth to goodness. We can't just collect knowledge and assume that's good enough. This Christian life is going somewhere, and so God calls us to take what we know and do something with it. Apply it to our lives. Be transformed by what we learn and how we learn about Him. We, we've got to mature from truth to goodness. We also have to shift our focus from, from the start to the finish. But He doesn't just leave us with those two kind of reprimands. He leaves us with some encouragement, some compassionate encouragement. Don't despair. You can move from fear to confidence. You can move from fear, how do I know that I'm not going to fall away, to confidence. I know I'll persevere, that God will preserve me. See, the hard part of understanding what our author is trying to do in this passage is that we tend to, to simplify what it means to be a Christian. You pray a prayer, and then you're in. Right? It, we try to make it simple because when we talk to our kids about it, we want it to be understandable, but we maybe oversimplify it. Um, and proof of that is kind of in, in the testimonies that we hear from people who came to Christ at a young age. Sure, you know, I, a lot of people say, okay, I, I prayed to accept Jesus when I was a kid, and then in middle school or high school or college, I, I started to figure out what the gospel really meant and what it really meant to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. So I'm not really sure when I became a Christian. Sometime between them and then and now. My own testimony, I prayed to accept Christ when I was eight uh, in an Awana program because I didn't want to go to hell when I died. That was the sum total of my belief. And I knew that God had made a way so that I wouldn't be punished. It wasn't until I was actually serving as a pastor that I, I really began to realize that the gospel is not about a transaction. I give Jesus my sin, and he gives me a pass on being punished. The gospel is about getting God. It's about becoming one with the divine again, union and communion with God, beginning in this life and then extending perfectly into eternity in the future. The gospel is about finally becoming who God created me to be again in relationship with him. It's not just a trade so that I can go do whatever I want and not worry about hell for eternity. What I'm trying to say is, if you, could, if you see your life, your Christian life, on an upward trajectory, if you see yourself moving from a, a simple and transactional understanding of the gospel uh, to a realization that the gospel is all about God's undeserved goodness to you in Christ, and your life is being transformed as you live in gratitude for that realization, you can move from fear that you're one of those who maybe won't persevere to confidence that you will and that God will preserve you. It's, it's why our author is able to say in, in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. 
For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. He's not saying they've been working so hard that of course God will accept them. They've earned it. No, what he's saying is they've, they've put it all on the line for the relationship with God through Christ. We'll read more about it in chapter 10 when we get there. They've endured public ridicule and affliction. Their property's been plundered. They've, they've worked hard to take care of people in inhumane imprisonment. imprisonment. It's been a hard struggle. And he's telling them, look, I, I know what you've done. And people, especially at this time, people don't come to Christ for the personal and social benefits of being associated with this group. This is the group that gets publicly ridiculed. This is the group that has their property and possessions taken away as a threat to public decency. This is the group that's been afflicted and dispossessed and thrown in prison and abandoned and afflicted. If you've stuck through all of that because you believe a relationship with Jesus is better than anything you've lost on this earth, he says, I'm pretty confident you'll persevere. You're going to make it to the end. You're going to stick through. And yet, he wants... He wants to have that same confidence, and he wants us to have that same confidence for everyone. Verse 11, he goes on, he says, we desire each one of you to show that same earnestness, to live well underneath these circumstances, show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. I want you to be fully assured so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, I want you to know I want you to know, to to be confident, to have the full assurance of the hope in which you trust. Follow it to the end. Don't get sluggish, listless, or lackadaisical. Look to the fathers in the desert. Look to Caleb, Joshua. Look to these guys who believed the promise. They were patient, and they were faithful, and they inherited the promise. They endured to the end. He's trying to give us some compassionate encouragement. You can be sure. You can be confident and have that full assurance. You can have that full assurance because you look at yourself and you know you're trusting Jesus alone. Not anything good that you've done, not anything you've tried to do in order to earn God's forgiveness, not even looking primarily at the fruit that you're producing, hoping I've produced enough, maybe God loves me. You can know because you look to Jesus alone. And you can be further assured because you do look at your life and you see that it's on that upward trajectory of growth. Those who fell away in the desert were on a downward trajectory of faith in who God is. They went through the exodus and fell away from there. He's saying, if you've gone through this, continue upward. If you see that, you can be assured. And even on top of that, the Holy Spirit whispers to our hearts, Sort of a divine whisper saying, you are mine. You're my beloved son. You're my precious daughter. I would give anything. Actually, I've given everything to get you back. And the Holy Spirit whispers to us, you are mine. He's encouraging us. Look at your life. Look at Jesus, more importantly. But if your life is being transformed because of your love for God, such that every area of your life is 
progressively, little by little, becoming more characterized by faith and hope and love, then you can be confident. Confident that you're a Christian. You, you can be assured that you'll persevere. You can know that God will preserve you. Let me dial this in for us. I want you to ask yourself a question. This would be a great question to use in your community group later this week, with your family around the table, with a friend. Uh, Even just self-reflection, writing it out. I want you to ask yourself a very simple question. It's maybe one you've been asked before, maybe one you've asked yourself. The question is this. What makes me a Christian? What makes me a Christian? Let me suggest some wrong answers. Number one. Well, I'm a Christian because I'm doing what's expected of me. I go to church, I follow the rules. That's why I'm a Christian. Okay, obvious bad answer number one. Bad answer number two. I'm a Christian because I don't want to go to hell when I die. I'd rather spend eternity with my family forever, so I pray to prayer. Uh, And yeah, of course I'm a Christian. I prayed when I was five or seven or 12 or 18 or 35. Of course I'm a Christian. I pray to prayer. Bad answer number two. Bad answer number three, though this one gets a little closer. I'm a Christian because God gave me a way to not be punished when I die by giving me his son Jesus in my place. Man, that one almost gets there, but it's still all about me. I would suggest that someone with the faith that perseveres and who has thought about it, if you ask them, what what makes you a Christian? They might answer something like this. What makes me a Christian? Nothing but Jesus. Seriously, I don't know how or why or for what reason God chose me. All I know is that I had been a slave to myself and to my own desires for as long as I could remember. I thought it was freedom, but it wasn't. I tried everything and nothing satisfied. And so for some reason, God broke through all of that. He chose me of all people who deserved at least to to break in and show me my blindness and show me that he loved me so much that even in my propensity to just foul up everything that I touched, even in my sinfulness, God came into this world in Jesus to to come into my own self-destruction. And he self-destructed himself in my place, so I wouldn't have to suffer an eternity of being trapped inside of my own head with just myself and my thoughts. That would be hell. And I don't know why, but he showed me there was a way out. There was a way to finally be what I could feel in my bones I was supposed to be, but couldn't do on my own. And all I had to do was the one thing I'd never done before in my life and I still find pretty much impossible to do every day. All I had to do was admit that there's someone bigger than me. I'm not the biggest and most important person on this planet, but there's actually someone, a God who loves me, who's bigger than me and that I didn't, don't have what it takes to save myself. He had to do it. And I don't really know how to put all that in words. All I could say was, God, I'm just, I'm tired of only having myself. I'm tired of how everything I do and everything I touch is tainted by my selfishness. And I I want you. And I know you have to do all that work. I know you did all the work. And I want you to do the work in me to help 
Turn me from myself to you, whatever that looks like. And they may go on to say, and you know, I think I finally have a vague idea of what that means in my life. It seems the more I keep turning toward God and away from myself, the more I realize I must be becoming like God because nothing else explains why I'm starting to love people that I would never love before because they're different than me. I'm starting to fight for other people instead of just against other people in order to get what I want. I'm even starting to realize that when, when it feels like God's not there and I want him to be there and I want him to you know, be this thing that's always there for me, I'm just treating him like a thing and it's all about me again. It's like he's, he's him and I'm not him and so if he's, our relationship is on his terms, not mine. It seems like the more I turn to God, the more little tastes of who he is I get and those tastes, it's not much now, but I cannot wait to an eternity until an eternity of union with him and I get to experience all of him all the time. Now, what makes me a Christian? I guess God made me a Christian. Uh, I don't understand why or how, but he did. And I can't explain it. But he chose me. You see the difference? That's a faith that perseveres, that lasts between the advents. Now, in case you uh, didn't put the dots together. Uh, Jenna and Anna and I made it home safely. We got a hotel in the Quad Cities and waited for the blizzard to pass and for the roads to clear. Uh, it was, a, even a, the next day, it was still crazy unsafe driving. We counted 165 cars in the ditch between Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and uh, the Indiana border. Man, but that desire to just be home can be overwhelming and lead you to do maybe foolish things that you wouldn't otherwise do, but it is a God-given desire. I mean, it's, a, it's that longing for peace and rest and belonging and togetherness that will only come when our Savior returns in his second coming, his second advent as our king. That's why we pause during this season between the advents to sing of our King who is coming and call out, even so, Lord Jesus, come. In the meantime, we mature. From truth to goodness, we, we focus on the finish. Where are we going more than on the start, where we came from? We take comfort and assurance in our faith in Jesus as we see it grow and transform our lives and our churches and our communities. But we pray, oh, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray, Jesus, come. We're tired of being on the way. We're tired of not being home. We're tired, of, we're tired of, of feeling like we just we have so much farther to go, and yet we know we could just be there if you would come back. We unite ourselves with, with all Christians throughout time in this season of Advent in which, yes, we celebrate your coming has freed us. Your past coming as our Savior has freed us, but your future coming will, will finally liberate us into the promised land that you have held for us.
Father, we were under slavery. We were in bondage, but we took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and we have been led out by, by our mediator. We have been led through the waters, and we have come out into this pilgrimage where we are now on our way to the land you have promised for us, to an eternity of union with you. And I pray that you would help each of us to look to those who have come before, to imitate them so that we too, by patience and faith, may inherit that promise. Lord, preserve us as we persevere in you. We pray this in the name of our King who will come again. In Jesus' name.